0: Welcome to Forward Fooding, the food tech revolution podcast. Join us as we chat to the founders, startups and scale-ups, creating a brighter future of food. I'm on there, you know, to have uh, Max uh, with us. Um, He basically co-founded Agrilution uh, and is currently the CEO. Agrilution's mission is to bring fresh greens into your kitchen uh, and with their latest farming technology, um, they can actually uh, allow you to grow your own herbs and salads at home, which is is quite amazing if you think about it. But uh, Max, um, for, for the ones who don't know what Agrilution is all about, can you just give us a briefly uh, a brief introduction um, about the company and your, actually your journey co-founding the business?
1: Sure, I'd love to. First of all, thanks thanks for having me. Uh, pleasure to be here, and I'm also looking forward to some questions later on. So um, I just to paint the picture a bit, you know I, I'd love to to go back and tell the story of how it all started. Um, So I'm I'm 30 years old, or 31 years old. I'm from Munich, Germany, and that's also where I'm talking to you guys from at the moment. Uh, I'm streaming from our office here in in the west of Munich. And, you know, my story began a, a relatively long time ago. And I was born here in Munich, and we moved to China with the family when I was nine years old, because my mom was doing rural development work there. So we lived in the Northwest of China in Xi'an in a small city um, of eight million people, Um, but there were hardly any foreigners there. So it was a very interesting experience. And my mom was doing rural development work there. And I sort of grew up in like a golden cage. And then on the the weekends, however, um, our parents always took us to the countryside to show us the projects that they were working on. So at a very young age, I was confronted with people that really didn't have any uh, access to the bare necessities of life. So no access to fresh water, no access to food, not even proper shelter. And that, uh, seeing that huge difference between where you're born essentially um, left a big impact or a big imprint on me. And so we then moved back to Germany at some point. I finished school here. And after school, I was always looking for something to do with a purpose, something to, to find a way to give back to society or to the environment in some way. Um, but I didn't really know where to start. So I started traveling a lot. I spent some time and lived in Spain for a while, then moved to New Zealand to work for Greenpeace. And uh, during my time in New Zealand, um, I I came across a book by Dr. Dixon de Pommier, uh, The Vertical Farm. And that book really changed my life 180 degrees. I was so fascinated by that concept of, of being able to grow food in cities in a more sustainable way um, with less impact on the environment and doing that through a new sort of like a a technological approach that i was so fascinated by reading that book that i just sent him an email um, and asked him where in the world i could study something related to that topic and to my surprise he then really replied to me within a couple of hours and i started talking to him and then i actually moved to the netherlands to study international food and agribusiness uh, at a university there that had the biggest uh, applied research facility for indoor farming already nine years ago. And um, that university was called HAS. So it wasn't even Wageningen, the big university that probably everyone knows, but back then Wageningen wasn't even doing research on the topic. And I, I basically spent some time in a very, relatively small, boring countryside town there um, and had a lot of time to to nerd out and dive deeper into the topic of vertical farming. And then sort of started uh, realizing that there were a lot of projects going on around the world already, uh, in terms of either uh, research institutes or universities looking into the topic or even first companies. Um, But most of them were focusing either on, purely on research or on industrial scale applications. And I just saw this huge opportunity in bringing really all of the benefits that vertical farming has to offer and trying to bring, bring them as close as possible to the point of consumption. So to the consumer into their home. Um, and from that idea, that's really how, how Evolution was, was started and was born. Um, and then the first thing we, we started developing was um, a product that, that's now also on the market since last year which we call the plant cube. Um, it's sort of like a like a home appliance, like a dishwasher sized unit with two layers uh, and all the tech that's usually only applied in industrial scale vertical farms. So we have full climate control, um, automated watering, uh, full spectrum LEDs, and the machine takes care of the entire growing process. So we've also developed a thing that we call a seed mat. It's in essence it's a substrate with pre integrated seeds already and we ship that dry to the doors of our uh, customers and they then put it into the machine and the rest of the process is is plug and play so you only need internet and uh, electricity uh, and then the machine takes care of the entire growing process from seed to harvest in the end you get a push notification to your app Uh, we give you recipe suggestions of what to cook with it um, and you can harvest continuously almost on a daily basis and yeah that's that's really what we what we've been working on the past seven years now
0: oh wow that's a that's a seven-year journey in uh, eight <laughs> minutes <laughs> thanks Max for that uh just to maybe deep dive a little bit on um, on the product again just to bring sure. everyone up to speed with uh, what the solution does can you actually maybe tell us a little bit more about how did you how did the product came about and how did you guys, I guess, through a number of iterations, you know, uh, brought it to life as in the, sure. in the form that we, can, we, we, we all know today?
1: Well, you know, it, it really started, uh, I was talking about this concept of vertical farming with a lot of uh, friends and, and people I knew and family and everyone always thought I was, I was fucking crazy. You know, who wants to grow food at home? and uh, and how is that even possible in a machine and they didn't know what i was talking about so i needed someone to visualize what i was talking about and that's how actually i got introduced to my co-founder again so i've known him for almost 20 years because we used to play basketball when we were kids together in school um and then roughly eight years ago when i started talking about this concept um, i also came across him again and he was really good at uh, 3d and, uh, visualization software. And he then basically created the first render of what was in my head. And then he was so excited about the idea that we started working on it together. And then we started raising, um, actually we didn't even start raising, but someone offered us money, um, to build the first prototype of what we were talking about. And then we started taking, uh, part in the students' competitions and also thought for food. So Marie, who is on the call here, uh, she works for TFF now. Uh, And TFF was really our launchpad, so to say, in in 2013, when we became runner-up of that contest and uh, got a lot of media attention. And then we also got first uh, bigger amounts of investments from first angel investors in Germany. Um, And then at some point, we we raised our first couple million euros and I decided to drop out of university because I had found the project that I really wanted to, to dedicate my full attention and time to and so i moved back to munich and started working on building agri full-time and then we grew from yeah philip and i from two people in the beginning to roughly 30 people or a bit over 30 who we were last year um up to the point of really like iterating product after product we did about eight eight product iterations before we launched the first one to market last year Um, and then we were in a somewhat difficult financial situation end of last year uh, and then found an amazing partner in in Miele who who took over or didn't took he didn't take over but they um well we made an asset deal with them and now we're part of the the Miele corporation um, and we were always very skeptical about working with big corporates um but to be honest it's it's really like a match made in heaven it's so wonderful to work with them because we align on on our values and um they let us work on our uh, vision long term and they think very long term because they're a family owned company they're not stock market uh, traded or anything um, um so yeah there's just a, a lot of, there are a lot of interesting synergies between between Mila and us so they they have where well, we can leverage basically their sourcing uh, capabilities, uh, their engineering, and they have over a hundred years' experience in, in the home appliance sector. They're by far the biggest, leading premium brand in the world when it comes to home appliances. And there are just a lot of interesting uh, synergies where we can work together now, and it just opens up so many new possibilities that we actually decided everyone decided to stay uh, at the company and. Um, are very excited about the future now
0: that is awesome max and it's a great actually um segue into my next question but before I get into that <laughs> i'm glad that they actually you brought it up uh, as a as a key topic i guess uh, um we hear a lot about corporate collaboration and it's, it's so reassuring to hear that you you so far you had a really good experience um and you you can really align you know i guess your your company's value with uh, the Miele, you know, uh, Miele's ones, although you know, there are way bigger, you know, I guess organizations than yours. And in <laughs> particular, that, you know, they're working on, uh, I guess, the same time horizon that you guys are working on as well in terms of uh, long term vision, which is awesome. Um, so just to uh, maybe deep dive a little bit on that. Uh, so you said you, you guys have done uh, um, a deal now that they have taken over uh, on, on an asset level uh, but still empowering you guys to actually run the business. Um, can you tell us maybe a bit more about your journey, you know, first of engaging with them, you know, where did that kind of content, you know, came from, and then I guess your experience, you know, working with them. And if you can share maybe any learnings that you've gathered along the way with any fellow founders that might've joined us today.
1: Yeah, sure. So, I mean, we were, uh, an, I would say, a normal type of startup. We were uh, venture capital-backed the past six years. Um, and we didn't have any of the big US-based VCs on board, but we had some big German funds and raised yeah, close to 10 million euros over the, over the course of the years. Um, and it's just a completely different uh, ballgame now, working with someone that's family-owned where everything is, is long-term um rather than yeah raising money for i don't know 12 to 24 months and then being in that rat race of trying to read your milestones and then um selling a story that's super difficult to achieve but you have to sell a good story to raise a ton of money and to keep running um and now you know everything is slowed down we can really work on the things that we want to work on which is is the long-term vision and not some way of trying to make corners cut corners here and there to uh to make a ton of money because that's not really why what we why we started out you know it's it's a purpose driven company and not something to just make a ton of money um but what really happened over the course of the years i mean we've worked with corporates in the past because we we had this relationship with osram for example um we had a strategic partnership with them and they were also one of our investors Um, and we, for example, it, it all started because we were developing our own led module for the, for the product. Um, and, the yeah, the technical cooperation went really well. And then they decided to also invest into the company. And then we had them on board as an investor for two, two and a half years. Uh, and that also went, uh, went well, but of course, I mean, everyone has, yeah, It's it's sometimes challenging to align all of the the interests, I would say, or the different perspectives. And then, um, you know, they are traded on the stock market. And so raising our last round was, was a bit of a challenge because of, um, yeah, the, probably the amount of money that we were raising and also the phase we were in as a startup and the whole sector, because it's completely new. Um, and also the whole, um approach that we're taking with going direct to consumer in a b2c approach rather than large industrial scale b2b farms um, yeah and that didn't work out as planned and then we had already built a relationship or not i wouldn't say a relationship but we already had been in contact with Mila over a course of uh, one and a half years every once in a while just touching base um, and we never really wanted a strategic investor from that side because it would have blocked us from raising other capital from from traditional VCs. Um, but yeah, when that situation happened uh, end of last year, we were in a difficult financial situation. It was the logical step to then uh, reapproach approach Miele. Uh, and we also talked to other people in, in the space. But um, there was just the best alignment with Miele uh, in terms of vision, uh, our values, and, and the direction that we really wanted to head into. And they said they would only do this deal if we really, really want them to do it. You know, if uh, They don't want to do it if it's like a hostile takeover. They would only do it if we stayed on board as the management team, if the team stayed on board because they understood that the company uh, could only work, and it could only work in collaboration with them if we don't lose the speed that we have. Because if we fully integrate into their corporate uh, environment and structure, then everything slows down. Um, but they want to keep us independent as sort of like this little speedboat, and the big tanker, uh, the big heavy boat, uh, which Mila is, can still do their thing, um, and we can support and leverage all of the the structures that they've built over the past 120 years. But we can also be still flexible and agile as our little startup.
0: That's awesome, Max, and thanks again for sharing very openly. I guess your your journey uh, in engaging and then uh, leading enough to to the acquisition. Um, out of interest, uh, w- at the beginning, how did you actually navigate? I guess the whole corporate uh, world. I mean, you mentioned earlier that you used to work at the WWF, and you've been so exposed, you know, in the um, to the corporate world, but I guess when it comes to uh, the likes of uh, Osram or Miele, uh, I guess they're very different, you know, beasts. How did you guys, I guess, navigate the whole, uh, you know, corporate infrastructure, identifying the right people to to talk to, and you know, any learnings that maybe you can share with uh, with fellow founders and that that would be a, that would
1: be awesome. I mean, what I've really uh, learned over the past years is that it all boils down to. Uh, communication and people skills, especially in in, in a role like mine. Um, and as as long as I trust my gut feeling and I'm I'm open and and honest, um, people appreciate that. And um, I just try to to stay that way and always act like that, act within purpose and stay true to myself without trying to bullshit anyone. Uh, and people respect that. Uh, and as long as you communicate clear and open, I think um, that's that's really been what's oh, that's really what's been working for me or for us in the past years. I think.
0: That's awesome. So, you're saying that by basically being transparent, you were able also to be referred to the right people internally, I guess, in the organization, and really figure out yeah. mapping out all the different stakeholders and figure out who were the ones that you really had to, I guess, talk to. In order to kind of advance also your conversation with them,
1: and you shouldn't. You should probably shouldn't even if there's a way. You shouldn't try to. Um, yeah, how do I say it? You shouldn't try to uh, contact the the CEO directly, for example, and mm-hmm. overtake the, the. The kind
0: of the, conversation. The corporate that,
1: hierarchy, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so if people want to introduce you and want to give you uh, an introduction to the higher level, then that's cool. But you shouldn't like jump over them. Yeah, um, so it was very
0: organic, I guess. Exactly,
1: sure. it was completely organic, the process, yeah.
0: So you started, I guess, with open innovation and people were to deal with the... Exactly, innovation. yeah. And then from there, I guess, you went into venturing and M&A eventually. Is that right?
1: Yeah, correct.
0: Great, and uh, can you share maybe how, if any change, you know, have occurred before we enter like, uh, the biggest, I guess, change because of COVID and all of that? Uh, did any change occur since you guys got acquired by them in terms of like how you communicate you know internally but also with your stakeholders within the corporate is there anything that you you can share with us in terms of like just uh, the aftermath i guess of the acquisition how did you guys adjust
1: yeah i mean we really restructured the whole company we uh, we got everyone together that was uh, still on board after this whole process happened um and then yeah basically did large what we call it we formed a, a company culture club okay. um, and just asked people uh, what they've liked in the past what they didn't like how they would see the evolution 2.0 uh, in the future um, and then really shaped or reshaped the company together with the employees uh, built a new strategy um then pitched that strategy to to Mila management. Uh, got a bit of input here and there from them, but I would say 95% they they accepted and they understood why we wanted to do the things uh, and how we wanted to approach it. Um, And that process took about, yeah, almost three months. Uh, So we really slowed down and took time to reflect. So, I mean, now we're all forced to slow down a bit during, during this whole COVID situation. Uh, but we did that proactively, actually, starting uh, last last year of December already. Um, took a step back, uh, slowed down, reflected on everything, uh, restructured the company, re-strategized, uh, and then hit the ground running in, in February again.
0: Wow, okay, so effectively from... Uh, how long did it last, the whole process from signing, I guess, the deal to actually
1: hitting the ground running? Well, the- the deal process was actually really really fast so it happened within a matter of six weeks oh wow six okay. six, six to eight weeks from first uh, touching base to then all the legal technical financial due diligence process uh getting the contracts uh, lined up and then on on the 1st of december everything was signed Oh wow uh, Yeah, and then, and then we then we took that step back uh, started re- reevaluating everything we were doing and uh, since basically beginning mid february we've been fully operational again
0: Oh wow okay that's a uh, proper i guess startup style <laughs>
1: yeah adapting <laughs> fast good. and keep the Exactly
0: keep the ground running fantastic so Let me then jump into, I guess, less uh, uh, sexy (laughs) topic of everybody's (laughs) agenda now. And I think it would be really helpful if you could, in today's normal, if you could share with us where do you see actually, uh, what what do you see as the biggest challenges in food tech uh, Mm -hmm. uh, at the moment, in terms of like, I guess, you know, further developing also your venture, even if it's within, you know, a large corporate now, uh, but in general, you know, where do you see uh, are the biggest challenges that uh, the whole food tech industry is going to face?
1: I mean, what we've seen through this whole COVID situation, and I think that's that's super interesting. Is that all of the excuses that we've heard the the past 10, 20 years about how we cannot uh, change things from one day to the other, and how we cannot stop our our behavior or, or our normal uh, systemic rhythm. Uh, to, to balance out climate change or to, to fight climate change, that that's not possible. But then when a pandemic hits us, uh, you know, from one day to the next, everything is possible. Everything stops and slows down. So I think that was super interesting to see. And that's an excuse that we uh, hopefully won't hear that much uh, anymore of in the future. So it will definitely have a positive outlook, um, positive influence on the climate crisis. Um, but generally, I mean, what we've seen also is that our our food system, the way it's built up, is is not very resilient. Um, and uh, you know, what we're doing with agglution and also with vertical farming in general is is trying to um, make the whole food system more resilient and less dependent on on trade, uh, less dependent on on transporting it from a small farmer uh, to then ship it a couple thousand miles before it ends up on your plate. And, um, yeah, trying to, to cut all of the the distribution chains. And I think it's a, it's a necessity. It's something that we, that we'll see a lot more of in the future. Uh, and people are, uh, understand a lot more that, you know, Dixon always used to say, and this was like nine years ago and I've, I've recently uh, mentioned this a lot in in talks or or interviews I've uh, been asked to give is a city really has about two to five days of food Um, and if if the system shuts down you know and we don't have food anymore then shit really hits the fan you know that's probably a way bigger problem than what we're seeing with a pandemic now if we don't have food uh, people go crazy because they're hungry so I think vertical farming or just making the entire food system more resilient will be something that's on a higher priority on the agenda. Um, or will be a higher priority on the agenda in the, in the coming months and years. Uh, so I think I mean, it's, it's bad to say that this is a uh, something good that's happened. It's certainly not good, but it's so of shaken and woken a lot of people
0: up and that was necessary very true yeah very much I agree with that um, I think uh, challenges you know are, are there to be faced and again we don't really choose when a pandemic is gonna hit us so but I'm with you I think you know has really proven that there are no excuses you know that we can use against uh, I guess reversing climate change um as anything really you know like a pandemic can hit us from you know at any any given point so um uh, what i see is that on the one end yeah it will be more challenging maybe you know these days to develop a food tech company or to build one from scratch right but on the other hand i think the needs of innovation and especially in technology in in the agri-food space is i guess uh, now evident is more evident than ever Right, because yeah,
1: fully uh, agree that
0: um, the food system uh, is not resilient uh, enough, I guess, to to face with you know a pandemic, but or I guess yeah. uh, any other big change, you know, in the market that may occur again in the in the future.
1: Uh, so, so de- decentralization uh, is something that hopefully will play a bigger role uh, in the food space.
0: And what do you
1: mean by decentralization? So um so i mean in our case it's really about bringing the the point of production to the point of consumption um and and reducing the amount of miles the amount of food miles and therefore reducing food waste but also impact on the climate
0: yeah yeah so you're saying also i guess the number of uh, i guess intermediaries that are in the food chain might actually yeah. be cut off as we're trying to make the the food system more resilient more resilient Um, So
1: urban or local food production uh, will have to play a a bigger role in the future. Yeah, very
0: very much. And so just to piggyback piggyback on that, um, what do you envision to be the the next, uh, I guess, big trends in food and food tech? And uh, how do you envision the future of of these industries to look like?
1: Um, Well, obviously vertical farming, but we've talked about that for some time now. Uh, There are lots of other things that are now being um, sped up by this whole uh, COVID situation. And one of them is plant-based food alternatives. So, I mean, just from the story, at least in in the US and in the media in the US uh, about meat packing plants or or huge slaughterhouses and, and factory farming in general. Uh, it's something that's uh, probably more on the agenda and in the topic of the discussion in the media than ever. Um, so I think that's that's the healthy conversation that started. Uh, people paying more attention to about how animals are treated and how the, the animal processing um, is, is happening. And people switching to, to meat alternatives, like plant-based meat or, or dairy or whatever. I think that's uh, only gonna play a bigger role also in the future. That's a big trend that's not going away. Um, Synthetic biology will play a huge role uh, in terms of food production um, in in the future. So that's another big trend. I I think that's also gonna uh, take an uptick through this whole pandemic situation. Uh, Local urban food production. I think those three are probably the biggest ones that I'm seeing at the moment.
0: Yep and uh, let me just ask you a quick question again back uh, to I guess the evolution of vertical farming. A couple of weeks ago we had a chat with uh, uh, one of the co-founders of AeroFarms and we talked about uh, how actually vertical farming um, can play a role also in I guess, I guess allowing consumers to create food that actually it's almost similar to medicine, meaning uh, stressing the plants to effectively develop specific uh, properties that can actually be therapeutic or, yep. you know, they're that kind of, you know, um, at the, in between, you know, food and, and nutraceuticals, right? Yep. Can you maybe elaborate a little bit on that or, or just share your view on how do you envision, you know, kind of the, the stitchers, you know, and the, the borders between food and medicine to kind of become in the future through vertical farming?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's probably my favorite topic. Uh, And it's something that we're working on here a lot. Uh, We refer to it as personalized nutrition and basically trying to, on the one side, identify the compounds within plants that can be increased through um, environmental stressors by controlling climate, uh, light, uh, but also uh, the watering. And on the other side, identifying how that all works within the human body uh, and how you can by changing your diet. uh, I mean, probably lifestyle not probably but lifestyle and the environment plays a huge role. Uh, But just looking at how the body functions and how you metabolize certain compounds and how your body takes them up. And linking that to the the aspect of controlling the output within a closed environment vertical farm, uh, super, super, super interesting topic. and I think we'll see a lot more of that in the future. Uh, I don't know, I, I'm sorry, but I didn't watch the the conversation that you had with Mark, but there is a uh, there are a couple of companies out there already that are, for example, producing vaccines uh, in 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 a vertical farming uh, environment, like uh, Fraunhofer Institute, for example. Um, they produce, um, produce a, usually, uh, vaccines are made in, uh, or reproduced in eggs, uh, but it's way faster and, and more controlled, uh, and has less impact on the environment. Obviously, if you do it within plants, usually it's done in tobacco plants. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, one, one thing that can be done is producing vaccines within a plant. the plants. The Fraunhofer Institute does that here in Germany. But there is also a big company doing that in, uh, in Texas, in the US. Uh, they've done it, for example, for the Ebola um, crisis that was hitting us a couple of years ago and they produced vaccines. Um, and it's uh, certainly something that will uh, play a role now if the vaccine is, is created or found uh, for the whole um, COVID situation, right. corona. Um, but... In essence, like, that's always a treatment, and I, I prefer to do something before it happens. Uh, so <laughs> prevention is probably the better route to go. Um, so eating healthy, living a healthy lifestyle, uh, that's what everyone can do on a daily basis to just stay healthy and build a more resilient immune system. Uh, and obviously the way to do it is through a plant-based diet. And enhancing certain aspects of your diet through plant-based, what you refer to as nutraceuticals, or just plants with uh, high high amounts of of secondary metabolites, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. Thanks, Max, for sharing that. I I think is is it is a topic of increased interest in the i guess global community um although i guess they are in the early days of development uh, especially within vertical farming uh, uh, a framework um i think is increasingly interesting as uh, more consumers as well are i think looking for uh curing i guess themselves with food as opposed to medicine so i think it's really interesting to see how other applications have also Existing technology can enter also out of industries and I'm sure that you know when anyone started, you know, in this space. They probably didn't know that by stressing the plants, you know, they could get more out of it. Right. But yeah, once, it, once you do it, then you understand, I guess, the full you see the full picture of opportunities that yeah, you know, the technology can and can and, offer. and the
1: cool thing really is, you know, for all the skeptics out there, is that you don't have to mess with the genetics. You can purely do it by changing the environmental parameters around the plant to really just get the full potential that's already in the seed, just unlock it.
0: Mm-mm. Yeah, it's super interesting indeed. <laughs> you know, sometimes people think about, uh, you know, genetics and and food As like the almost the Frankenstein (laughs) (laughs) food, but actually is a lot easier than sometimes we can even imagine. Um, Mm. Fantastic! I guess we're running out of time, so I'm gonna close it up here and opening up to uh, the questions from um, the participants. Uh, I've taken some notes as you were speaking. Some people were actually uh, typing their questions. I'm just going to take the first one from Yuri. And if anyone else has questions, if you can either raise your hands or type them into the chat, that would be fantastic. So Yuri was asking, um, referring to the latest uh, Moore's documentary, do you believe vertical farming is really and truly sustainable similarly to solar power generation?
1: um so i'm i'm sorry i didn't see michael moore's last um documentary or latest documentary Um, but i do believe vertical farming is definitely sustainable but it depends how you do it so it, it has to be linked to renewable energy source otherwise obviously if you produce energy in a coal coal power plant or a nuclear reactor it doesn't make much sense Uh, But if you do it through uh, geothermal energy, wind, solar, wave, tidal, whatever, um, definitely the way to go. Um, But the most important aspect to consider uh, when you look at the sustainability or the overall ecological footprint of vertical farming uh, in comparison to conventional farms uh, is to to have a look at the planetary boundaries. Uh, And this is a super interesting concept uh, of nine impacting or being impacted the most. Uh, I think you lost me, right? Lost you for
0: a second, uh, Max, but I think, yeah, yeah, you're back now. So
1: my uh, headphones turned off, sorry. Um, So yeah, the most most important aspects to look at uh, in terms of the overall ecological footprint uh, is definitely soil and the health of our soil on the planet there just isn't enough soil left to produce food for the coming couple billion people. Uh, and the way we're treating our soil and depleting our soil um, has a very, very dramatic negative effect on, on biodiversity. Um, and we're with the overuse of pesticides, uh, over fertilizing, uh, agricultural yeah, runoff in, in, in general, uh, and then also the, the overuse of uh, of, um yeah fertilizers like or compounds within fertilizers like phosphates or or nitrate Uh, i mean these are things that are ending Uh, we won't have enough of them in the next 20 to 40 years or it'll be extremely expensive to source them because they're ending up on the ocean floor over time Uh, so these aspects next to obviously uh, Water and climate and, and stuff like that uh, are probably the biggest stressors that we're putting onto our global system. Uh, and they are heavily influenced by the way we do agriculture around the world. So, vertical farming can play uh, a role there because it's if you do it soil less in a controlled environment and run it with um, renewable energies.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Max. And I also saw that Yuri uh, thanked you in the chat, so I guess uh, you you addressed this question. Um, Then we have another question from Karim, um, who's asking, what are the main challenges when building a direct-to-consumer model, um, whether it is a micro-modular farm like yours or an indoor farming venture?
1: um one huge challenge is getting the necessary capital i would say because in the end you're you're addressing end consumers you're not going b2b um, or b2b to c and that just makes it uh, challenging because you have to find a way to get brand awareness or get known some you know people have to become aware that you exist and that you offer a a solution to their problem or to their need so it's something that you have to either be very lucky to get a lot of viral attention, or you need to spend a ton of money in building that awareness. Um, the other challenge I would say is that you need to be very, very precise in who you target. Um, so you have to do very targeted marketing uh, if you go B2C direct. Uh, and pricing uh, is is also extremely important to have the right pricing strategy.
0: Fantastic, thanks Max for this. Is there any other question? I can't see any from uh, the, there are any others, this would be the time to ask them. Let me just get back into the, Chat, if not, I have a very last question for you, Max. Oh, we have another one here. Uh, Still Karim um, asking what would be the factors that will reduce modular farms prices, if there is one or what are the multiple factors that will help reducing modular farms pricing?
1: Um, I mean, one there are a couple of things you can do. One is is that you don't try to reinvent the wheel. Try to look for parts that are used uh, in in large scale in other applications or other industries, maybe. Um, The other thing um, that you can do is obviously produce at scale. So economies of scale always help, but it's challenging to reach that point. Um, But that's certainly something that we've, now, we're in a very lucky situation uh, in while working with is that we can use parts that they're using in other, uh, other machines. Um, and that's something that we haven't been able to do in the past. And that's why our, our first product was relatively expensive and then also targeted at a premium uh, consumer niche. Um, and that will hopefully change down the line now.
0: Fantastic. Thanks, Max. So very last question, I guess would be just for you again, if there are other fellow entrepreneurs who have joined us today, um, if you could share one piece of advice with your younger self, uh, what would that be? I guess trying to, you know, uh, summarize all the learnings, I guess, that you've uh, gathered along the way. If there was one thing that you would would share with, with your younger
1: self. One piece is difficult, but in in general, I think uh, time. I always thought that um, I'm I'm running out of time and there is not enough time and someone else will copy us or will be faster or whatever. But in essence, time is the most important thing that you have in life Uh, and be very, very wary of that and what you do with it. Um, and yes, when you're building a startup, you're going to put a, invest a lot of time into building that company. Um, but there are other things in life that are important next to work uh, and balancing your health in order to be more, uh, to give out more performance and be more effective and efficient. Uh, so, probably man- time management, being very, very cautious with how you spend your time what you spend time on. And the other thing is working as effective and as efficient as possible.
0: Fantastic, Max, uh, thank you very much for joining us for such a fantastic interview and for sharing very openly uh, your story and the story that led you to build uh, the business and all these great pieces of advices that you've shared with us all. Uh, we wish you and Agriolution team uh, the very best over the coming months and we watched the intro with interest actually how you're gonna further develop uh, the company and help i guess bring more vertical farming uh, um units within uh, uh, more households so we're really excited thanks a lot again for for joining us and for everyone for who's with us, we're gonna record yeah. this session and then share it over youtube uh, in the next couple of uh, days so Stay tuned and uh, join again. Uh, join me in thanking again Max for your time, um, and uh, we wish you all a great day. Thank you. Thank
1: you very much. Cheers, Max. Take care. Bye bye. Take care. Bye bye. Happy.
0: you for joining us for this episode of the food tech revolution podcast make sure you subscribe to stay up to date with all the latest episodes and sign up to our global startup community and join the food tech revolution over at www.forwardfooding.com